Welcome back to the Ketamine Startup Podcast, where we talk about anything and everything related to ketamine clinics, marketing, startups, and more. Today, I had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Carl Bonnet at the annual American Society of Ketamine Physicians, Psychotherapists, and Practitioners Conference in Austin, Texas. Dr. Carl Bonnet is the founder and owner of Clarasana Clinics. He's also a board-certified emergency physician, as well as spending 20 years in the Army National Guard. He talks a lot about ketamine clinics, some of the mistakes he's made, some of the learnings. So I hope you stay in tune and learn more. Let's dive right in. Welcome to the Ketamine Startup Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. We have Dr. Carl Bonnet from Clarasana Ketamine who is here with us today. And I'm super excited because he's actually been doing this for quite some time. And it's truly an honor to have him. He's, he was one of the founding members of the American Society Academy of Physicians back in the days in 2017, and does a ton of research, especially for not necessarily being an academician. So it's a true honor to have you on here, Dr. Bonnet. And yeah, we'll just start with the first question. So for the Good listeners, who are not aware of you or who don't know about you and your background, like tell us a little bit about you and sure. Yeah. So I'm an, I'm an emergency physician by training. So we have that in common, but, and I did 20 years in the army national guard. So a military veteran got deployed a few times after nine 11. And so that was kind of the big impetus for just getting into this is the veteran suicide rate. And then when I saw what ketamine could potentially do for PTSD, I guess I got the bright idea to open a ketamine clinic. <laughs> The rest is history. So here we are, man. So yeah, and tell us. I remember you were you told me a story back in the days that your first ketamine clinic was like in a strip mall. It was like three hundred square feet. I don't remember the exact specs, but I remember you were like, dude, I just started really small. Do you right, tell us right. about your first space? Uh, yeah. So it, it, I was living in San Antonio at the time, and that's when I got the idea. At that time, there weren't very many ketamine clinics at all. I think there was only like ten or twelve in the, in the country that I could find. So I rented a small space and it was basically, it's a little strip mall that was connected to a storage unit, right? A big thing of storage units. So it was 12 by 20. So I guess 240 square feet, wow. the smallest ketamine clinic in the country, I think. <laughs> and, and yeah, so it was, it was, it was just a small little room. And then the, you know, you come in the front door, the back door opens into the hallway that has all the, the garage doors for the storage wow. units. And then you have to go down the hallway to go to the bathroom. So we learned pretty early. You have to show a patient what that hallway looks like before they get on ketamine. Otherwise, it is it is truly a wild trip for them. But, <laughs> but yeah, so it was, I mean, I guess back at that time, I mean, looking back, I'm, it's a little weird to think we we're in that just kind of like god-awful uh, location. But, you know, I, th I think the Grateful Dead had a saying that they weren't the best at what they do, just the only ones doing it. So I guess mm. that was kind of the uh, situation back in 2015. Yeah, that's beautiful. So that's back in 2015. Now it's 2023. We're approaching 2024. I know you have a number of clinics, you're, you're kind of multiple sites. So tell us about how many clinics you own and what states they're in. Sure. Yeah. I mean, right now we got five. So we have San Antonio, Austin, and we have three currently in the Denver metro area. So Westminster, Longmont, and Denver. And we'll be open in Littleton, hopefully the summer of 24. And then we'll see from there. And that's a pretty school, a cool skill set because I know a lot of ketamine clinic owners, because there's a transition from going from zero to one. But then there's another transition, like I make up in a mindset to go from one to five or one to six. Like, tell me about that shift for you, that mental perspective. Like, how did you go from zero to one? And which can be doable because we know a lot of ketamine clinic owners, but the one to several is, in my mind, a new challenge. 
Yeah, the it kind of a little bit happened accidentally because I opened San Antonio and then I was living in San Antonio, which I guess in retrospect, I'm not precisely sure why I decided to open a psychedelic medicine company in San Antonio, Texas. The political climate at the time was not very favorable, but but it was at the time in Austin, Texas, there was only, there was one large pain group that was offering ketamine and all of a sudden overnight they stopped offering it. And so for a brief period of time, it's kind of funny to think of this now, there was hardly, there's really no one doing ketamine in Austin, Texas. So I was just like, oh gosh, we got to open a clinic there. So then we opened two and at that point it was kind of like oh well we have two what happened so long story short i moved back to colorado and then decided to open one back in denver because i figured i'm living in denver right now and and that part was actually challenging so then trying to run two states two time zones and whatever and not necessarily having the revenue to be able to hire other people to help with a lot of the stuff that i'm not necessarily all that good at was was kind of challenging so it's funny how like once we got to the point where we opened number four, which is our Westminster clinic. Then we finally started getting enough revenue where I could hire a few people to sort of help out with some of the stuff, you know, some of the business stuff and, and whatnot that, that I'm not necessarily all good at. So it's it's a little bit weird that like, you know, you, you, once you get to a certain size, it gets kind of painful, then a little bit bigger, it actually gets a tiny bit easier in the sense of just being able to hire some, some other people, which is cool. Okay, awesome. So it sounds like the expansion in a way helped ease load it kind of reminds me of like having a child like they say i have one daughter <laughs> and i know you have two but they there's a saying that like the, the first one is hardest but then like number two three and four supposedly are easier so i, I don't know if there's any metaphor similarities there to a point yeah i mean i think when we when we opened uh, like when we after we opened westminster we, at that point we had four clinics and i that was a bit of honestly a little bit of a tactical error on my part because we got the idea i got the idea to open longmont and then of course i wanted to open longmont on veterans day so we opened it in november november 11th of 2021 which was only i gave my team eight weeks to open it which then i was like oh my god so we so we, we made that timeline but honestly that almost took us out because we weren't structurally ready for that the infrastructure was not there the, the, you know we have personnel hr all that kind of stuff but once we got it up and running and got things solidified, we now have brought on. We have a chief operating officer who's awesome. We have wow. a CEO now who's who's great. I mean, the I mean, they just laugh because I am the last person you want to have looking at numbers and spreadsheets and business. And, and that's really interesting because <laughs> you know, in med school residency, we're not necessarily taught the business side of medicine. So no. the fact that you you're able to do it, plus now it sounds like you have a team to kind of outsource and delegate some of yeah. the things that we're not necessarily trained at. I think that's really useful. Yeah. And honestly, I'm just not very good at that. I mean, my eyes gloss over. I love, you know, as, as, as you know, I like coming up with ideas for research projects and this and that, but like, oh man, you know, doing like, you know, financial projections and trying to figure out what the EBITDA is going to be and all this stuff. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's pretty, that's it's pretty, pretty cool. It's pretty painful. Speaking of research, I know you've had several publications and I know before the recording we were talking about it, but one of the ones that stands out in my mind and that I actually use quite a bit is the one you did on PTSD. And I think you were doing like one hour infusions and pretty high dose, if I recall. Mm-hmm. So yeah. tell us a little bit about that study that you did. Yeah, so that was, when was it, 20, 2019, I think it got published, Annals of Clinical Psychiatry. So we did a, did a study on 30 combat veterans with PTSD. And at the time we were doing infusions, we have since switched over to doing uh, IM sessions, in, uh, intramuscular sessions. But at the time we were doing infusions and I guess the impetus for that is I had, I had talked to a, a lobbyist, actually. So I was, at the time, I was all gung-ho thinking, like, man, I want to get the VA and try care to start paying for this for veterans. You know, the veteran suicide rate was really, you know, near and dear to my heart. 
And he said, like, you know, the way to do that is you got to show them a study that it works in veterans. You know, you can't just show them a study that works in humans. Politicians apparently don't understand the difference between a human and a veteran. So none, <laughs> none, none they're very way. different. <laughs> very different for politicians. Yeah, exactly. So, so I got the bright idea, you know, got IRB approval and we did, did that study. And, you know, it wasn't anything super fancy. It was just, you know, doing the scoring before, doing the six sessions and then the scores afterwards, just kind of show like, hey, you know what, the PCL5 and whatnot can, can decrease. That yeah. ketamine can be effective. So, And one of the things that I use that article still to this day is you're doing quite high doses, yeah. right? Because the standard research protocols, let's say at Yale or at Hopkins or where, you know, Columbia, Mount Sinai, they're usually sticking to 0.5 mix per kg in a 40-minute infusion. But your study was different because I, I yeah. recall there were some high doses. Yeah. Yeah, and that was, I, I think we ended up around 1.9 milligrams per kilogram on average on the sixth on the sixth session. And and where that came from, it's, it's a little bit humorous because when I got the idea to open a ketamine clinic, I had just finished 20 years in the Army National Guard. And I was a knuckle-dragon military. I was as far away from a psychedelic physician as you can be. And I went out to San Francisco at a, a conference, and I, I met Dr. Phil Wilson, who, as many of you watching this may know, a psychiatrist. And he is, is very much in favor of the psychedelic experience and all sort of thing. And like when I first talked to him, I'll be honest, I thought he was crazy. I, I was just like, dude, you don't know what you're <laughs> talking about. Because he said, like, you know, it's the alteration of the mind is what helps with the transformation. It's what helps you see behind the curtain. And I was just like, What? And so I went back and I was like, okay, well, I'm going to start increasing the doses and see what happens and whatever. And it worked, man. That was, that was a thing. You know, if you could, I'll, I'll share a quick story of what was one of the things that I guess convinced me of that. I had an 82nd Airborne guy who, you know, he was the real deal. I won't go into too much detail about his situation, but he was a you know, combat veteran. He was, he was the real deal. He was in a bad space mentally from his combat deployments. And I remember we were increasing the dose and on his fourth session, he, I went in there and he was just kind of crying and laughing and like he's you know he said man I was I was in this vision I was in an old western town I was walking through this town like the horses and the saloon the sheriffs all the gunslingers and all this kind of stuff and he's like you know I walked around a building and I saw that it was just the front of a building held up by two by fours wow and he was just like it's a set it's a set and he kept saying like you know Iraq is a set and afterwards we were talking about that and he was just like you know what dude I mean it, Iraq and I used to be one and the same. Mm. There was no separation. And then now I remember he took his wallet out and sat on the on the table and he's just like, you know, now Iraq is over there. Wow. And I'm over here. And that's where I like I was like, wow. That, that's <laughs> that's a really cool story. And and I mean we know that ketamine is a dissociative agent. I mean it's not a classical psychedelic, but it does, in my opinion, can yeah. create these psychedelic non-ordinary states of consciousness and Kind of being able to shift gears and have that perspective yeah. of like, oh yeah, this is just a Hollywood set and it's right. just held up by two by fours. Like yeah. that's quite powerful. Yeah. So Phil is one of our co-authors on that veteran study, by the way. So awesome. I, 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 he's he's a great mentor and I consider him a friend now. Yeah. So. <laughs> shout out to Phil. shout out to Phil, man. Yeah. yeah. He's... I'm interested in you're one of the. I know some ketamine clinics are like cash pay only, and others are in a minority are like actually working with insurance companies. Uh, but I, I believe for Clarisana, like you guys are really kind of on the cutting edge of getting insurance coverage. How's that been for you? I guess uh, for some reason, the word boxing match just came to mind <laughs> with, with me being on the receiving end of it. But, but no, it's, it's been fun. I mean, because again, our, from the get-go, our mission has been all about access. 
So we're trying to get this out there and available to people. You know, I kind of joke that, like, you know, I, unfortunately, I don't take care of the movie stars and the basketball players and all that. You know, so but that's OK. We're trying to get out there and get this accessible to people. So we do participate with Colorado Medicaid, which, which has been great, actually. I mean, you know, kudos to Colorado. They're actually you know, easy to work with. They don't exactly pay for the ketamine itself, but, you know, we're able to get some bill, some reimbursement for the visit and, and, and whatnot. So that has actually been good. We just got survived a couple of audits from them, which which was good. So wow. we so we, we, we made it through that without any problem. And the private insurance has been a little bit more challenging, unfortunately. So we were in network with several private insurance companies, one of them, which I guess I won't name because I don't want to get in a pissing match with them right now, but came back and audited some of our charts and said, hey, we're not going to pay for anything related to ketamine. Any visit that has ketamine in it, we're not going to pay for any part of it. Ouch. Ouch. Yeah, I mean, even like ouch. if our therapist was doing therapy with ketamine, they wouldn't pay for the therapy code. Which is totally Which legitimate. Is just, and, yeah. and I said, well, what are, you, what are you talking about? You know, so they were like, well, it's, it's, it's experimental and all that sort of thing. So, so long story short, we then ended up having to pull out of our contracts with the private insurance companies. So right now we're kind of reassessing, reassessing that situation. Yeah. So, you know, I'm hopeful. I mean, you know, some of the New studies coming out showing the ketamine is, you know, not inferior to ECT, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I think it's eventually going to get there, but yeah. Yeah, it's, it's slow to happen. And I am seeing a shift, like, for example, Massachusetts Blue Cross Blue Shield mm -hmm. yeah. is now covering IV ketamine and or Spravato. Yeah. And recently, I got an email from a patient because I gave her a super bill with ICD-9, ICD-10, CPT codes, et cetera. And I said, okay, submit this to your insurance company. But I also had her, I gave her the PDFs to that ketamine study in the New England Journal of Medicine. Mm -hmm. And I gave her a couple of meta-analyses, systematic reviews. And I said, in addition to your super bill, yeah. provide these three articles and submit that as well. So yeah. surprisingly, she got 100% reimbursed from her yeah. insurance company, which was really cool. Yeah. I think it's going to work eventually, right? You know, so... It's, it's just going to take some time. I mean, I think, you know, I think the, the recent grant that Dr. Santacor and his group got, you know, 12.6 million to look at head-to-head -head ketamine versus S-ketamine mm -hmm. is going to be good. I mean, I, I would be extremely surprised if S-ketamine is somehow vastly superior to ketamine. I mean, the biochemistry of it doesn't make sense. I mean, I don't know why it would be. <laughs> so I think as this stuff starts to come out, it's going gonna, it's gonna to work. We're also looking at some just direct contracts with companies. And, uh, you know, one law enforcement agency that we're in talks with about perhaps getting, hopefully, you know, fingers crossed, get a contract with. Nice. And then, so I think as that starts to happen, I mean, payers have just got to realize, right? I mean, I mean you and I both know if, if, you know, God forbid someone takes an overdose of Tylenol because of their depression or whatever comes into our ER. I mean, man, that turns into critical care visit, ICU stay, all this kind of stuff. Like, you know, the, the number needed to treat uh, to have huge cost savings is not very high. I 100% agree. I think one day, I mean, if there's any health insurance people, management listening to this podcast, like, yeah, it'll actually, it's a win-win because it'll save them money. It's better for the patients, for some patients, it can be quite effective. So hopefully yeah. I, I do see that shift occurring. And I love the fact that you're working with like military veterans, you're working with law enforcement, first responders. Like I've treated several of those patients mm -hmm. from those backgrounds, like I recall one, he was Iraq, Afghanistan, and one of the powerful stories that he told me, which was cool, he said, hey, Dr. Ko, I was watching some war movie, Saving Private Ryan or something, and he said, this, normally when I watch movies like that, or even if there's a screenshot or just a quick clip, like he would get hypervigilant, start sweating, have all these like anxiety associated with that, but he's like, I watched the movie, 
did not bother me at all. I was just able to watch it and without uh, the normal yeah. kind of hypervigilant symptoms that he had. So it's really cool oh, it's incredible. in that space. Yeah, that's that's our, our, our latest push is we're really trying to get into law enforcement. So we're, we're, doing, we're treating a series of police officers. We're mm-hmm. going to be uh, getting our IRB approval to publish a, a study on law enforcement. And, you know, just because, too, it's, I mean, I, I think, you know, we as society and taxpayers have an obligation to take care of them, right? Because, you know, from day one, we know we're going to be putting them into a situation that's going to be enormous psychological trauma. But, two, there's this huge societal aspect to that where, I mean, this individual is someone with a gun who's going out on the streets and interacting wow. with our citizens, Right. So if they're in a good headspace, the more they're going to be more likely to have very good positive interactions. Whereas wow. if they're in, you know, if they're dealing with, if they're human beings, right? So if they're dealing with, with bad stuff, you know, going through a divorce, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, what concerns me is that it, they're more likely to potentially get in, in, in an adverse situation with some civilian, you know, who knows, it might be differences in, you know, race, all this kind of thing, sure. you know, one, one thing leads to another, and then all of a sudden you got an, an incident, which then can have, you know, riots, bloodshed, all this kind of That's stuff. That's actually so. a really good point. I'd even consider the long-term ramification that if there is a police officer or a member of the sheriff or law enforcement, and they have all of these symptoms that aren't necessarily addressed, they might be in a kind of agitated state, per se, rather than mm-hmm. a calm, tranquil state, which could impact society, yeah. you know, other people. Yeah, it's actually... Yeah. So, so, yeah, so it's exciting stuff. I'm, I'm curious. So you and I were both emergency physicians and we use ketamine all the time, procedural sedation, intubation, sedation, et cetera. So, but the clinic setting in an outpatient is quite different. Yeah. So for you, what are some of the nuances between doing it in a hospital, like OR, ER style versus like how you're doing it in the clinic for you? Yeah, you know, the, I mean, it, it's not very often in history that some medication has a one indication, uh, just a whole way of using it, which then everything is radically changed. It is just completely different. It is completely different what we're doing now versus what we're doing in the ER. You know, I mean, in the emergency department, it's all about the intention. The intention is to sedate someone to allow us to perform a, a, a painful procedure, right? It is, we're trying to drop them so we can do a painful procedure. Here, we're using the medication to create this, this sense of ego dis- disillusion, ego disruption, to affect a whole different experience, right? So, you know, the, you know, we're not looking for a complete disconnection. I mean, you know, our patients, as you know, I mean, they're responsive to verbal stimuli. I mean, they should be able to ambulate with assistance. I mean, yeah, they get altered a little bit, but like, again, the goal you know, it's, it's kind of like, a, you know, for those of your viewers who know how to drive a stick shift, which honestly may not be that many, I don't know. But when you hit the clutch on a stick shift car, you hit it all the way to the floor because you want to completely disengage the engine from the drivetrain mm. and change gears. Mm-hmm. That's what we do in the ER. Yeah. Right. Here, we're just riding the clutch a little Interesting. bit. Interesting. You know? I like that metaphor. A little clutch. disconnection. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so it's just fundamentally different. You know, that was the issue. Like, you know, years ago, I, I had a, a discussion, shall we, say, shall we say, with the Texas Medical Board where they were concerned that perhaps I should have filled out an application for office-based anesthesia. And I, I made a argument that was successful, arguing that we are not performing office-based anesthesia. This is fundamentally, radically different than what, you know, it is a whole different thing. We call it ketamine for non-anesthetic indications. And just, it's, it's a radically different idea, so. Yeah, you're actually the first physician where I heard that term, K-A- K-N-A-I. 
ketamine yeah. for non-anesthetic indications. So I'm going to credit you with coining that term. I don't know if you created that. But, I did, yeah. yeah. That, that came out of came out of the discussion with the Texas Medical Board. But yeah. The... Well, kudos to you. I mean, that's a big deal and a big decision, the fact that you were able to kind of have that discussion or yeah. legal medical fight for your yeah. rights as a physician and yeah. what you're doing. And I think that's important because even though it's just in the state of Texas, other medical boards are looking cases and similar scenarios so i think it's a really useful yeah. uh, thing that you did yeah if i can add one one thing to that too that i think is important to really understand if somebody's gonna be arguing to the converse mm -hmm. oh that we need it it needs to be designated as anesthesia we need to stop and think for a second why are they arguing that is it mm. just they truly believe we are sedating someone to the point where they're going to stop breathing which we know is not going to happen or is there perhaps a financial incentive because if it's, if all of a sudden what we do has to be done in a surgical center, shall we say, you know, all sorts of other codes come along and, and then before long, you know, a session is going to cost several thousand dollars. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. And this, again, this needs to be accessible, right? We, we know this saves lives. So, I mean, if, if, if somehow someone pulls some shenanigans, we're like, oh, this has to be done in an operating room and come on, that, that doesn't do society any, any favors. Yeah, I think that increasing access for patients, that's really important. I mean, that's the reason why we're physicians. We want to make right. an impact and we want to help people. I mean, yeah, that's kind of what we came into the whole medical right. field for. So yeah, it's true. And now a quick word for our aspiring ketamine clinic founders out there. If you've tuned into our episode today, chances are you're curious about the ins and outs of starting up a ketamine clinic. It's an exciting field, but let's face it, the journey from idea to actually opening day can be quite daunting. That's why we've created something special for you. Think of it as your personal roadmap, a free downloadable checklist that lays out the essential steps you need to consider when starting up your own ketamine clinic. This checklist is designed to help you avoid common pitfalls and launch your trajectory to success. So how can you get your hands on this checklist? Simple. Just visit www.ketamine.startup.com forward slash checklist and grab your free copy today. We've made it easy and accessible because we believe in supporting our community with valuable resources. Ketamine.startup.com forward slash checklist. All right, let's get back to our discussion. Stay tuned and don't forget to download your free checklist during or after the podcast. I'm curious just to shift gears. I think you're one of the few clinic owners that has multiple clinics. So from your perspective, because you do have that entrepreneurial mindset, what strategies or approaches have you found to be the most impactful for your success? I think one of the biggest things as far as strategy is a long time ago, I watched the, the video by Simon Sinek called Start With Why. And he talks about what's your why? You know, my why, when I came up with this is, you know, my, my initial why was I wanted to change the veteran suicide rate in the United States. It has since morphed into, I want to change the suicide rate. So when I think about it, I think of it as like, oh, I want to open in Phoenix. I want to open in Chicago. I want to like, you know, let's increase market share. Let's do whatever, whatever. That's like what Simon Sinek talks about. It's like, you, you, your goal can't be to make money. Your goal is to do something cool. Like, what do you want to do? I want, I, I know that like, like for instance, we're in Colorado, right? I know that there's a woman who is probably going to take her life in January of 2024, maybe that's when this is airing right now, in Colorado Springs. And I know there's some clinics down there, but like, you know, potentially, if we don't open, we may not intersect with her wow. and save her life, mm -hmm. right? She may not know that there is ketamine, right? So I'm not trying to say we're better than whoever's down in Colorado Springs, but, you know, the more this gets out there, 
the more access there is. So like, that's my why, right? So when I think about like, well, why do I wanna have 10 clinics? Why do I wanna have 20 clinics or something like that? Well, it's not so much so I can like, whatever, go to my high school reunion and be like, oh, I got 10 clinics or whatever. It's like, no man, there are people out there who are gonna die. Yeah. If we don't wow. use them about them. I, I love that because if someone doesn't have a strong enough why, and then they face an adversity or a challenge, they'll just give up. So I'm like, yeah. well, it's not that big of a deal. I remember hearing one of my friends was like, okay, Sam, imagine if there is a pool of human waste. Would you swim in that pool? And that's like, no, hell no. But what if your daughter or your child or your loved one was on the other end of the pool and the only way yeah. to save them was to get through this pool of waste? Would you do it? Like, yeah, absolutely. Right. So I think it's like having that why, that intention, it, it, yeah. it serves us tremendously. Oh, totally. Totally. Yeah. It's, it's huge, right? I mean, yeah. The, you know, I remember there was, there was a night where, or a day rather, where in our Austin clinic, we were going to take care of a gentleman who was a Navy corpsman. He was a Navy veteran, served with the Marines and whatnot. And he ended up taking his life the night before he was going to start treatment with us. You know, so he never, you know, had never got to, you know, never got to experience that. So, yeah, that's still, <clears throat> that still tears me up, man. Yeah. So, so when I think about that, I think about like, okay, some other town somewhere that there's not access to this, or even if there's a town where there's one clinic, right? I mean, I think... Honestly, like, you know, if, if there's several of these clinics in a given town, like, you know, if, like if you're the only person in your area of California who's doing it, a lot of people might be just like, well, I don't know, Sam just kind of fringe, man, what's this yeah. all about? So I think there's some the value to us opening and like, then people start to see this and they're like, whoa, okay, that, that works. And Yeah, yeah. And I do notice that like sometimes I'll go to like the area in our town where there's a lot of restaurants. It'd be weird if there was just one restaurant, yeah. right? It's like, no, some people don't want Italian food. They want sushi that day or they want mexican food so right. i think it's important to, to yeah like yeah have a variety because everyone's gonna have a different like style right yeah. so like one patient might really jibe with one doctor and another patient might really jibe with a different person so yeah. i think that's okay to have multiple clinics yeah that's what i'm hearing yeah and like you say man if it weren't for if it weren't for that why i mean man i mean you and i both know it, right i mean if we wanted to just make money and have an easy life we should have gone into like erectile dysfunction and testosterone <laughs> 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 or even working in the ER. I know right, right. I mean, it can be, especially like there was a point when before I opened up Reset Ketamine, where I was actually offered to be the medical director of an ED. Yeah. And I was like, I don't know, it was, it was quite lucrative because it was for one of these corporate management groups. But I it just didn't feel I right. I was climbing up a ladder, it was, but it was up against the wrong building. So yeah. yeah, opening up a ketamine clinic is not necessarily free mm. cash flow. It's a lot of work and yeah. it may actually be more financially stable to do something yeah. else yeah possibly. i know yeah let's see here so this might be related to your question of you know talking about your why in simon sinek but what's one piece of advice that you would offer so let's say there's someone out there and they're like hey i'm thinking about opening up the ketamine clinic i really want to do it like what's one piece of advice that you'd offer to them if they're interested in opening up their own practice I think it depends where they're coming from in a sense that like you know if it's an emergency physician who wants to do it you know, like, you know, you know, back in the day when we, when we opened up, right, there's just no one doing it. Right. And, you know, so it's just kind of like, okay, well, so I, you know, I, I, and I think you were in the same boat you know, we opened the clinics and we're like, okay, cool. We're going to be, we know ketamine, we're going to run it. And we'll just coordinate with local psychiatrists and mental health professionals in a collaborative um, fashion. Now, of course, there's so many more people who start to offer it right now that I think from the get go, you really need to have behavioral health support. Um, right off the bat, you know, at the very, very least, have a, a therapist on staff with you, you know, licensed therapist to help, you know, just coordinate and, and take care of the patients. You know, that's something we've done is added some therapists and 
hiring a psych nurse practitioner here pretty soon and, and whatnot. So that's a, that's a big part of it from just a clinical standpoint. Oh man, from a business standpoint, I guess, you know, the old saying about don't be undercapitalized, <laughs> you know, it's funny how you, you think about how much you need and then like, you know, just think about it. I think somebody said that one time, think about how much you might potentially need money wise and then double it. Like, mm, I don't know. I think, I think triple it might triple be a better. Uh... Well, one of the things that I noticed that you had mentioned is your first space was 12 by 20 square feet. That's pretty low overhead. Mm -hmm. So maybe when someone is starting, maybe rent a 250 square foot space or maybe rent someone's office just to keep the low overhead initially just to see if it's viable. Like, yeah, like my space was super tiny when I first started. Yeah. Yeah. Depending on your local environment, right? If, if, if there's a bunch of well-established clinics, then right next to you, then, you know, a very small space like that may or may not, you know, be in your in your interest. But, you know, certainly if you're in some locale where it's not that close or, I mean, I imagine there's still some places in California where, like, you know, even though it might be eight miles away from another place, uh, I know your <laughs> traffic, that might mm -hmm. translate easily into an hour and a half drive. So, so yeah, be, yeah, I guess be strategic about how that works. Yeah. But. So strategic, plan ahead, have the cash reserves, the runway, yeah. just in case, and, exp and anticipate that you're going to be spending possibly more than you budget yeah. for is what I'm hearing. Let's see here. So this is really awesome. And, you know, for you, I know you're juggling the clinics, you're juggling family, you're juggling research, you're juggling being expert faculty member for ASKP3. Like you're wearing a lot of hats. And so how do you personally strike a balance between, you know, doing all the different things you're doing as well as like balancing your own personal well-being? I guess part of it is... Um, but getting back to your why, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, like, you know, I, I like, I, I mean, some people might call it good or some people might call it a, a personal flaw on me. I don't know. Like, you know, I don't, you know, I don't go mountain biking and skiing and whatever. Like, I, I really want to get to the point where, like, I can look and see, like, hey, I've created something that is actually saving people's lives. And, um, you know, I guess I haven't done emergency medicine for 20 years. I mean, I don't know. Honestly, in some ways it was kind of cool but it also was a tiny bit of a letdown like you know like in the sense of like you know i didn't really feel like i made an impact that much you know you know when you watch tv you think you're like saving people's lives all the time and, and doing all this cool stuff and i know for me anyway it wasn't it really wasn't satisfying in that regard so i suppose from a balance standpoint like i love what i do man i just i love it like you know if i if i can sneak away grab my laptop and start like composing an article or something like that or you know <laughs> You know, I, love it. I think that's, I think that's fun. I mean, some people might find that pathologic, I guess. And I don't know, maybe that's why I'm divorced. I don't know, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like you're truly passionate about it. And yeah. it's, it sounds amazing. We're going to switch gears and do some like fun questions. Okay. So this one is, um, it's, it's a deserted island question. Mm. So kind of personal. So let's say, imagine that you're on a deserted island and you can only have one book one movie and one type of food what would those be for you let's see one movie let me start with one movie um now my favorite I, I may, maybe pulp fiction i guess i think i've seen it like 28 times literally uh, it's just it's so dark but it's such a fascinating study of the human mind but uh, either that or patriot games okay uh, book I man if i had to read one book over and over i guess I don't know. My two favorite books are Lord of the, uh, Lord of the Flies and Heart of Darkness by James Conrad, which wow. eventually got turned into Apocalypse Now. Mm -hmm. 
hundred viewers. I think I'm a dark. Person. I don't know. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm not that bad. I'm not that bad. But it's just I'm fascinated by human psychology mm. and like you know the, uh, the the dichotomy of good and evil and whatnot. Uh, what was food? You said was one type food? of food. Um, I find a deserted island. I was gonna say sushi, but I don't know about it. It's on a you know deserted island. Um, sushi or Indian food? I'm sushi or Indian food? Awesome. Uh, Carl, do you have a hidden talent or hobby that most people would be surprised to learn about? I'm not very good at it, but I like to play guitar. That was, you know, in, in high school, my dream was to be, a, you know, being a rock band, and that's okay. part of one of my hearing is so bad right now, and uh, and whatnot. So I guess that was that's the thing. Like, medicine is kind of funny when you look at me right now. Because like in high school, it was all about like I had hair down on my shoulders. I was playing wow. guitar, and that was the whole thing in college too. And I was very into art and photography. Photojournalism was my undergrad, so. So I, I think that element of it is, is probably my, my hidden side, and which I finally get to sort of express a little bit in the company now. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, medicine is type is an art, and yeah. your business, opening up a business is yeah. a type of art in a way. It's yeah. creation. Yeah. yeah. Which is cool. Okay, so I'm curious. Let's say that we have a time travel machine. Maybe the DeLorean from back, <laughs> back to the Future. Let's say you have a time machine. You could go back to any time period, four day. Where and when would you go and why? I think if I go back to the past, I don't know, I guess, I, I suppose I should come up with something really super cool and whatever, you know, <laughs> be like, you know, watch the Japanese surrender on the USS Missouri or something like that. But I, I, I really, the one, one of my biggest regrets, I never got to see the Grateful Dead play live. Mm. Jerry Garcia Jerry, Jerry was still alive. So I'd probably go back and just like see one of their original concerts, like in the 60s. Or that would like be that, you know? literally Especially a trip. In the line of work we're in right now. Yeah, you know, yeah, like, that, that makes sense. We just have a few more questions as we wrap up. But let's say just for funsies that you could no longer be a physician you could no longer do anything in this ketamine space but you still have to do something in career what would you do instead if i had to go back you probably like film video production something along those lines awesome. yeah, i love being creative and just and doing and telling stories you know, telling that, stories that's, that's the fun part of it yeah telling the stories yeah and i know i noticed that like kind of a theme from you is you're really a creator i mean you created clarisana you created the research co-created ASKP back in the days. So yeah. thank you for like being one of the pioneers and early adopters in this space. I, I think you're making a big impact oh. back then. You're making <laughs> it now. And I'm so honored to oh, have you on the podcast as we start up and just learn more about this space. So before I let you go, is there anything other last thoughts or last comments, something that you want to share with the audience? No, it's just super exciting to be a part of this, man. You just, it's, you know, it's funny how some people don't feel comfortable being in a situation where they're writing the book yeah. on how to do it. And I think that's fun. I think you know, all of us who are involved in this space, it's just it's so cool to hang out with, with you and everybody, you know, who is just a part of this and like just knowing that there's no textbook on this, right? There's no, <laughs> you know, there's, there's no Rosens on that. That's for those of you who <laughs> take emergency medicine textbook, but like, you know, <laughs> There really isn't. There's not, man. We all just kind of get together, call each other up, and say, "Hey, what do you think? Is this yeah. sound reasonable?" And and it really, from a medicine standpoint, it, it's kind of fun because it really gets back to the idea of what's the standard of practice, right? The standard the standard of care is what's acceptable in your community. So I know there's a lot of times where, like, you know, I'll text you or text Megan or text whoever, and they just be like, "Hey, is this is this cool?" And we all kind of talk about it, and it's just like, "All right, yeah, I think it is." Yeah, it's cool because it's so new, it's so revolutionary that we're actually creating protocols and ideas and balancing so it's i think opening up and being in the space is for people who are comfortable with that yeah. people who are comfortable with it being a little bit 
in the unknown and kind of risk and using our best judgments and risk stratification. So there is a little, yeah. quite a bit of creation and unpredictability in the space. Yeah. Final question for you, where can people learn more about you, your space, is there a way, how should, are you, are you on social media? Like I am, yep. So yeah, of course the, the company website is clarasana.com and then my own personal blog and, and the way I just get to explore some other aspects of psychedelic medicine is deepseadiver.com, misspelled C-S-E-E, so it's a little bit of play on words, so deep sea diver. And so yeah. yeah, check it out. Awesome, and you're gonna be starting my podcast soon, so yep. hopefully we'll get, we'll be <laughs> sharing podcasts. And with yeah. that, thank you so much. Appreciate you Thanks, joining Sam. us. Yeah, good All for right. having me. Thanks. Thank you. Bye.